What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing, man? Doing good, man. The dog days of summer and the content game, content minds, not too bad. A lot of good stuff this week. Feeling good. No, no movies, just music and television, but quite a bit to talk about. I'm looking forward to getting into all of it, um, but before we dive too far hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod or go to twitter.com search at nostalgia pod go to the link tree in our profile follow us there as well and then follow the link tree to listen to the podcast any way you want to if youtube is not your preferred platform but dave usually we talk albums we'll talk news talk about tv movies you know a lot of things that pop up but we had to start today because blackpink Blackpink, Blackpink, <laughs> they're coming. The album's coming in just a few weeks. Dropping Pink Venom. What do you think about this single? Straight to your dome, like ah ah ah, bro. I love this song. Let's go, Blackpink in your area once again. Man, um, you know, yeah. Upon first listen, I think the the moment I felt like okay, Blackpink is absolutely back, absolutely back. So when we get the one by one, then two by two line, uh, you know, venturing yep. back to Rihanna. And I'm like, exactly. oh, they're confident. They're cocky. They're going for it. I love it. If you're going to call Rihanna out in, in your song, if you're going to interpolate yes. her, fucking love it. What a look. In- interpolating her first single at that. Yes. Quite the quite the callback. That was Lisa, obviously, with that one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of hype and anticipation for the Blackpink comeback because as we've talked about a few times, Blackpink does not exactly release a lot of music. If you include, I, I counted this myself, if you include all the Blackpink songs, their few features, and the solo tracks, this is the 30th Blackpink song in the sixth years of their existence as the biggest girl group in the world. They really take their time and keep it uh, slight. But when they do drop, these singles, especially these lead singles, they're just always bigger and badder and crazier than the last one. And I think Pink Venom is like a such a worthy successor to how you like that and kill this love and do to do to do. Like it's just, it feels right in line with them. And I think the Blinks would have to agree because we had 90.4 million views in the first 24 hours for the music video, breaking Blackpink's previous high mark with how you like that, the third highest mark. Behind, of course, BTS's Butter and Dynamite. But after that, it's this song, you know, rapidly consumed. And it'll probably be their uh, one of if, one of the biggest uh, K-pop drops in, in the U.S. in terms of like the Billboard Top 10. I think Top 10 is pretty safe at this point across the world, too, not just in the U.S., which is crazy. Um, but then again, they're popular for a reason. They make really catchy, really big tracks. And I think in this this particular instance pink venom is just a really big showcase for jenny and lisa in particular like there's just tons of rapping from both of them on this but different flows and then the hook itself i think is incredibly catchy and the way it's edited uh in the music video frame cutting back frame to frame it's like almost inviting you to re-watch the music video or rewind Mm -hmm. trying to like see all the different imagery because it's so quick cutting uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to like about it. Yeah, completely agree. And it's just exciting every time we get something from them because it just feels like almost kind of like we're watching 
the modern day like spice girls or Mm. like some group like that you know just this like meteoric rise and the music just is fucking there like they they just make these bangers every time and they demand so much tension and you know when when they had that coachella set that's like legendary now everybody was there for 2019 went to the festival the hype is like okay blackpink's arrived but like do they have the chops to really back this up well yeah they fucking do because they're dropping (laughs) songs like this and you know that we're just gonna get straight heat in three weeks so i just cannot wait to see where this group's gonna go uh, yeah <laughs> pink venom man what a banger it's on our now soldier best of 2022 playlist already at the top so check that out yeah totally you know i think if you if you like on the surface this song probably doesn't jump out as anything outside of the ordinary for blackpink too if you look at the producers you look at the the songwriters it's a very familiar cast of characters led by teddy park of course who they work with on basically every song but I think uh, the beginning of the song, you hear the like traditional Korean uh, string instrument, a little bit of a different flair, you know. So I think overall production-wise, it's perhaps not quite as electronic as some of their other stuff. It's certainly still trappy. Uh, regardless, I think it's definitely uh, a fitting uh, comeback for the group. And yeah, I really can't wait for Born Pink on September 16th. And they're about to go on the uh, gigantic world tour as well, which does not have as many American dates as I would have liked. But uh, thinking about that tour, we'll see. Uh, I'd have to go to New Jersey or Canada. Those are the two closest ones for me. Tough. (laughs) (laughs) Babe, do you have a a favorite Blackpink member at this point? I do. For a while, it was Lisa, because she raps and dances really good. But I have to say, it's not Jenny at this point. I think just that like triple threat (laughs) mixed with bad bitch energy is just pretty unparalleled in music right now (laughs) she has just a awesome persona going with everything else she's she's total package this group just rocks though listen to blackpink get excited for uh their new album in three weeks like dave mentioned but dave why don't we switch gears go to some albums here real quick and let's let's actually do a little cleanup because we did not talk about the black thought and danger mouse album that came out two weeks ago now cheat codes and you know, I think there's a lot to be excited about on this record, but probably most of all, just getting Danger Mouse back producing rap music like full time, or at least like a full project. is pretty awesome, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. His first complete rap album he's produced in 20 plus years. Certainly a prolific producer, legendary producer at this point, but he has spread his talents around and worked with rock artists and worked with uh, other rappers and done all kind done all kinds of stuff really you know but i <laughs> i think more recently it's like what do people think of with him like the black keys like beck like he's kind of all over the place Narles barkley's probably a bit in the rear view at this point but yeah to, to have you know five-time grammy nominated producer of the year danger mouse alongside the front man of the roots black thought you know sounds pretty obvious and apparently they've actually tried to make this album happen for a long time. It used to be called Dangerous Thoughts way back in the day. Alas, they finally are here. And I think it probably makes sense, too, for Black Thought to do something like this because he's, past few years, recently come into his own as a solo artist, apart from The Roots, with that Streams of Thought EP series and then the album in 2020. So definitely kind of unexpected, but still really cool. And I don't know, do you think this album cheat codes actually did it surprise you in any way 
because to me i think it's like really good really really well done as you'd expect like classic boom bat production from danger mouse pretty uh inviting samples from some of the songs black thought as you'd expect lyrical mastermind dexterous flows rapidly ass rapper people know this but do you think black thought at age 50 and danger mouse at 45 do you think they can like really like wow you like that anymore or is it just like really really good but you kind of expect it to be really really good well you know i i think there's like two different train like thoughts that that come to mind with that question the first is no i don't think that there's anything that like surprised me on it but i do think i was very satisfied and maybe somewhat um I guess like I wasn't expecting, I don't know if I'd say surprised, but I wasn't expecting to see the amount of collaborators on here. You know, Black mm-hmm. Thought, I think pretty famously is very selective with, you know, the, the people he brings on and works with it. He doesn't just do, you know, uh, verses for anybody and, and doesn't just bring on anybody for the projects. It's very selective. And so seeing the range of people on here made sense and seeing some people that, you know, I've been hoping to get some music from recently or that we haven't been, been hearing from him. Like, Hmm. This is this is pretty interesting. Um, you know, the, I think the other thing is Danger Mouse for as dexterous as he is as a producer and obviously someone that has produced for many genres. Probably the the band I think about him with most is The Shins and James Mercer with their collaboration for Broken Bells. What he does for a group like or, or for Broken Bells or Gnarls Barkley is quite different than what he does on this. And it's just kind of nice to know that Danger Mouse can still reach back and, you know, uh, th- throw this pitch to this level still. Um, I-, I think, like, my one, like, I don't know, my one critique of this would be uh, sometimes some of the mixing felt a little, mm. like, strange in terms of choices. Like, I'm trying to remember exactly what song it is. It, Strangers is one of them. Um, but there's another song... Um, Oh, the the darkest part where with Raekwon, where it just feels like Black Thought is like not like close to the mic. And I think they're trying to like create some sort of vocal effect, but it just kind of mm. makes it sound a little washed out at points. Um, and, you know, I'm uh, I guess I'm just like Black Thought has an incredibly strong rapping voice. Like, I just want to hear him coming through crystal clear all the time. Uh, and I'm not sure if these like choices really added much. But that that's like a small nitpick for me uh, on a lot of this. Tell me about the because I saw you nodding your head when I was talking about the the collaborators on this. What were the the people popping up on this that you were most excited to hear from? Yeah, well, I think there's some obvious candidates, and honestly, I think if Danger Mouse made an album with some of these other artists, that's probably an even more inviting proposition than say working with Black Thought in his thirtieth year in the game. You know, mm. Joey Badass. ASAP Rocky, especially, I think both of them would be very intriguing, very tantalizing with this kind of vision on the producing side of things. Um, Run the Jewels, you know, hearing LP and Killer Mike with Danger Mouse. Yeah, shocking. Sounds great. Um, (laughs) In terms of my favorite song uh, with guests, I actually think my favorite song on guests is The Darkest Part, just because Mm. that kid sister chorus, I think, is incredibly catchy. You got Raekwon the chef doing what he does. Danger Mouse bringing you these keys on the beat. I really liked that one a lot. But yeah, I mean, it was, I think it was great to hear a lot of these guests. And I'm not a Russ guy at all, but I thought he actually sounded pretty good on Because as well. 
Yeah, I, I, I think when Raekwon comes in on the darkest part, even though he also is a little bit drowned out with, with the rest of the Sonics on it, um, I, th- I think it just kind of levels the song up. Raekwon has a tendency to do that. Just, <laughs> you know, any song he's on, just the song automatically feels like it, it's better. Um, I really liked Belize, um, you know, with, with the, the Doom feature on that. But, yeah. um, you know, kind of calling back to some of Danger Mouse's collaborations with Doom back in the day. Danger and, Doom. Uh, really just thought that song was was really fun um strangers you mentioned that one with run the jewels and asap rocky but that's probably my favorite track off of this i really just think that's like the the catchiest but also just like <laughs> sounds so badass like the way that the uh the beat is like toned down on that but the song that maybe surprised me most or the collaborator was most surprised to see was michael kiwanuka hmm. um who i mean I I know very little about Michael Kiwanuka to be completely honest. Other than I'm pretty sure he's the guy that sings for um, uh, Big Little Lies, right? Isn't he the guy that sings the intro to that? Oh shit, that's right. Nice nice pull there. <laughs> yes. So to, to see him pop up on this album, I was like, huh, this is not someone I would have expected to see on this uh, this album with these two people. But I think his vocals really add this like like dreary kind of like gloomy like feeling to the song which is really just like inviting with this like almost like grinding city type feel to that beat so i i I thought this was a really fun album and maybe it's not surprising maybe it's not going to blow you away but for as many albums we listen to where we're like pulling for anything good to talk about i feel like all i have to say is good things about this so uh, i was pretty pleased for sure for sure why don't we switch gears though and move on to H. Dave, when was the last time we talked about H? Because we definitely have. Yeah, we talked about him twice this year. We talked about him with his feature, War, on the Artie debut mixtape, Peer Pressure, his compatriot across the pond in UK hip-hop, white rappers at that in UK hip-hop. And then we also mentioned him as a candidate for XXL Freshman 2022, would have been the second British rapper to be selected had he been picked. Hello, he was not picked. And while I think H is still rising in popularity in the United States, his accomplishments in the UK are quite uh, long already for someone who's only 22, has only been rapping in a mainstream way for a few years. I believe he has seven top tens in the UK, five platinum songs. Uh, This is his debut album, though, Close to Home. I think a lot of expectations were put on this from H for an artist who has been popular but is still young. So perhaps finding what that career is going to sound like as someone who kind of not dissimilar to Artie came up and as like in, in viewed as like kind of, oh, there's that that cheeky white guy rapping, you know, he's pretty good, though. And while I don't know if H is quite as funny as Artie is, like Artie just says some ridiculous shit. H is a bit more seasoned. And I, I think there was a nice bit of range on this more than I had heard on his past EPs. Um, I think most famously people would know him from his song Rain with AJ Tracy, which is just an awesome banger. And of course, Agent AJ did link again on this new album. But what did you think? H's debut album, Close to Home. So uh, War, I, I really loved that song from Artie's album. I thought that was a really strong feature. And the album starts off in a very similar type of vein. You know, Belgrave Road 1, Louis Vuitton, and 1989 are straight, you know, like that grime um, 
like London rap feel, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the, the album kind of starts to change a little bit <laughs> and, you know, you get baby featuring Ashanti on there. Right. A few a Ashanti later, sample, really, not yeah, not really Ashanti a feature. Sample. Yes, thank you for the clarification because that that is important. Shanti isn't showing out for age quite yet. Um, in disguise with Bakar, I think it's like a real like mm. delineation point in this album because then it starts to get a lot more like poppy and a lot more like upbeat and a little bit more away from what I was expecting. And you know what what group came to mind was Gym Class Heroes for me and Travi McCoy. Oh it, with gosh. a lot of this stuff it, if you listen to in disguise that could have been a gym class hero song and i'm like i mean say what you want about gym class heroes they were huge for a period of time back in the 2000s yeah, driving chokehold driving <laughs> mccoy was everywhere and uh i think uh i think h has some of that in him now i think he's i think he's a much more talented actual rapper like mm -hmm. what like those first three songs belgrave road one louis vuitton 1989 straight bangers awesome way to open, open the album i think it starts to peter out a little bit from there but I, I like when he does that more but he does it okay even with people like aj tracy and ed sheeran later on like i think he those songs aren't aren't horrible so there, there's some potential for some maybe broader appeal than just that grime rap but did, did you get the same feeling um yeah i guess i can hear what you mean i think the, th the thing is two things about that right h is not as funny as Artie, and he just he's not as hard as aj tracy he he's a bit almost uh, non-threatening at times. Yeah. I think that's kind of how he's come across the whole time. He doesn't really, he doesn't run away from that either. And when he does his brand of a trap song on like check on this one, it's actually it comes across to me as like super authentic because he doesn't actually run away from who he is and who he isn't. Like I still think like it's fun to hear his spin on like those party joints, if that makes sense. Um, the other thing too is because he's from Manchester, he's not from London. He's a different. He has a different accent. He sounds different than other English rappers, uh, at least you know the mainstream ones that we, that we know, because most of them are not from uh, the north. And something about him, I think he just he just has a, a a bit of a unique presence. And yeah, I think that's funny to. I'd be curious if anyone has really made that connection before the Travi McCoy across the pond UK rap like cadence and, and style that that's interesting um you know i think if you listen to a song like uh my g featuring ed sheeran obviously huge feature to pull ed sheeran on your debut album but if you go a bit <laughs> more mean, under the under the hood with that one it's um actually like a a love letter to his uh younger sister who has down syndrome and it's like a, it's a message song you know yeah. And, you, you, and then it's like, oh, yeah, actually, it makes perfect sense that you have Ed Sheeran singing the hook for this one. You know, it's like it, it all kind of fits. So it, it's cool to hear, I think, a really heartfelt, intentional song like My G alongside just something fun like Check or something like uh, Our Kid with AJ Tracy, where he's literally going bar for bar back and forth with uh, his, his contemporary rapper, you know. So, well, I don't think he's a refined product yet. He's clearly made a bunch of good songs at this point. And of course, rain is certified at this point. He's made enough of these songs to be like, yeah, there's the momentum is definitely going forward. He's definitely rapidly rising talent. Yeah. The, uh, the Ed Sheeran, uh, point where, uh, you know, great to get him doing the feature, but he's also been doing a lot of features recently on up and coming, mm -hmm. um, albums, you know, talk about Fireboy just a few weeks back and him hopping on those tracks so uh, yeah. he, he's working you know he, he's willing to hop on and, and 
you know, he's also a fan of UK he's... rap, truthfully, yeah. as, a, as a British man himself. So and, and he definitely wishes that... he was a rapper for sure, or at least better yeah. at it than he is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with the songs that you shouted out. And yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot to like on here. I'm very interested to see if, if he chooses to like refine more in certain lanes or if he's going to try to stay like broad in terms of appeal. Cause like you mentioned, um, like the AJ Tracy and my, and my G Ed Sheeran song are very different. Those few first few songs compared to songs mm-hmm. like sunshine and, um, in disguise are very different. So he's, he's got a lot of different sounds he's trying here and I think he does them all fairly well. Some better than others, obviously. Yeah. I think the key thing with him too is, he has to determine eventually has to determine what kind of artist he wants to be. If he's going to target uh, mainstream rap success in the U S without alienating his fans in the UK and whether that is even a real thing to decide. And that's not just a strongman argument, you know, because we've seen Stormzy and Skepta and Hedy one and, and on smaller degrees, people like AJ, you know, find success in the U S and still be legends in the UK. Now, is H and Artie probably as well? Are they the next up on that regard? It'd be interesting to see how a UK rapper, UK white rapper, would cross over to the US, given how white rappers are received, both positively and negatively, just in the space of hip-hop, you know? Like, how does H fit in in the Jack Harlow moment we're living in? You know, tough to say. And we're probably a few years away from finding that out, but... Yeah, I, I'm definitely uh, definitely rooting for him. He seems like a really nice guy as well. He seems pretty funny and down to earth. So, um, was it was happy that close to home uh, went as well as it did because make made do on a lot of that hype and talent. Yeah, I, I think close to home is worth listening to if, if nothing else than to be tuning into someone that seems like they're going to be making a name for themselves even more moving forward. So, uh, give it a listen. Let's talk about someone that's already established themselves. Though, and that's Demi Lovato, who just released her newest album, Holy Fuck or Holy Fuck. <laughs> uh, why didn't she just go with the U? You know, I don't know. Um, marketing stylistic. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. SEO. Anyways, yeah, Demi. Demi went punk rock metal yeah. with this. Back to her roots, baby. Camp rock. We've come full circle. Yeah, album eight. I, I, su- I suppose so, right? I guess. Um, you know, she's a lot more known for her pop R and B ish vibe than, than what, what we got on this. And we, she, she's been working in between. You know, uh, I think dealing with some personal matters. She mentions mm-hmm. right at the top of this album that she's, you know, been back in rehab for some time between the last album. And as as nice as it is, as it is to have her back making music, you know, it does feel like she's someone that, um, you know, is very aware that her mental health struggles and her substance abuse struggles are things she's going to be dealing with for the rest of her life. And I imagine that in some way making music and the cycles and the nature of stardom probably are detrimental in some way to her dealing with those things. So I imagine it's probably a difficult balance for her. Mm -hmm. How did you feel? How did you feel about this like turn in terms of her musical sound and just kind of persona in general on Holy fuck. Right. And, I think that that is the key question, the most interesting thing about this eighth Demi Lovato record, because we just got the seventh one a year and a few months ago in 2021, Dancing with the Devil, The Art of Starting Over. And that was not a rock album by any stretch. You know, that was the comeback album. That was the rebirth album, the hopefully 
step forward in her personal life record, right? And then Skin of My Teeth comes out as the lead single. And I mean, the song starts off, uh, you know, Demi went to rehab again, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that she's kind of making light of it or fitting it into her song is like, wow, actually, I think the way she speaks about this in the music on that, as well as other songs later in the track list, like Happy Ending, I actually kind of appreciate that candor, candor, as you said, that that self-awareness, that uh, w- whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's one of the most interesting things about her as an artist is the struggle, unfortunately, and she's at least factoring that into how she talks about life. But her going back to, to rock, obviously back in the day, it was much more pop rock um, sound, you know, in the coming off Disney Channel, of course. And I believe the Jonas Brothers were super involved in the inception of that sound and writing of a lot of that music back then. But to go back to rock, I actually think for her it comes across pretty genuine, given that she has roots in this. And obviously, I think people know how in vogue this has become in mainstream pop music in the wake of Olivia Rodrigo and Machine Gun Kelly and even like a Willow Smith, you know, like we're, we're seeing this pr- pretty regularly. We're like in the, the Travis Barkerization of pop has, has begun in many ways. And Demi doing it is like, I, you know, that's one of the best candidates I think for someone to do this, where it actually makes sense for you strategically in the pop landscape, but it also comes across as more or less a bit authentic. So I, I welcomed it because I think it actually sounds pretty good because her core strength is still present, which is her really good, uh, vocals. She has an amazing voice, and it fits. And yeah, I, I think she can she can handle it. So I think this music is a bit more lively and interesting than a lot of the stuff on the last record, which is you know kind of obviously more somber and uh, introspective and, and inward looking. I think the stuff on Holy Holy Fuck is probably a bit more fun to run back. Yeah, the, you hit the nail on the head with the vocals. I think that's the thing is Demi is such a, a strong singer and can do so many different things with her voice. I mean, even on this album, you get her giving so many different uh, vocal performances and presenting her voice in different ways to try to create effects that, it, you know, at times it can feel like there's more than just her on songs. Um, and mm. obviously she has a few uh, collaborators throughout this, but um, she could make anything sound good, <laughs> I think, with the way that she can sing. So then it's like, is is the vision there? Is is what she's trying to say with these songs at least entertaining, at most, um, you know, deep and thoughtful. And and I think it probably falls somewhere in the middle. It's definitely entertaining and definitely fun to run back. It feels like sometimes it's like some things are thrown in or like edgy just to kind of <laughs> make it make an edgy album. I don't hate it. I, I just think it doesn't always feel as like totally genuine um, as some of her stuff on her last album, which was obviously incredibly personal. And she opened up about, you know, um, almost dying because of their mm. substance use so yeah. you can't always have that in your back pocket exactly exactly and if you think about it i think there's uh, a point where after you've been in this cycle long enough that you, you do grow an edge so it feels definitely like this is a, a move that makes sense for her and, and feels in line with her interests. just um i i think that at moments it felt 
better for me on this album than others. And one of those moments is Skin in My Teeth. I think that song is really great. I actually really like the first one with Youngblood, Freak. Yeah. Um, which I was surprised at, especially, you know, Youngblood, also a Disney alum. So I was like, oh, this is kind of cool to see them t- uh, teaming up together. Uh, but what other songs stood out to you? I definitely agree about Freak with Youngblood. And Youngblood's got an album coming out next month we'll be talking about. Youngblood brings a nice contrast with his vocals to that song. And, you know, his 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 introduction to, to rock music, we don't have to get into that. But perhaps authenticity is a bit more questionable with him. But it, it sounded pretty good. So uh, hats off to them with that one. Um, I, w- I was struck by Substance and City of Angels, because those two in particular, I think, are specifically pop punk tracks. You know, the drums on City of Angels really stood out to me. But just uh, Demi's performance on that. I think those are two of the, you know, perhaps more, I don't know, perhaps more traditional, like, backward-looking tracks. Like, that's more like an, like an Avril Lavigne song mm-hmm. by Demi, you know, something like that. Um, Skin My Tea is definitely the, the catchiest thing uh, on here. And I think, if anything, my biggest criticism would just be, I think the lyrics themselves songwriting itself can be a bit basic at times. Like it's just kind of straightforward writing, which is okay. You know, you're making pop music still, even though it's rock at the end of the day, whatever. But, you know, I I guess this one, I'm not really looking for like too much deeper meaning. I think if anything, I'm just taking in the fact that she's just letting loose and saying, fuck it. This is, this is how my life is. You know, let me at least enjoy myself as best as I can while still trying to manage what I got going on. That's at least how I, I read it. Yeah. I, I I think that's a good observation for city of angels and for substance. I definitely see what you're saying with those two songs and the sound, um, you know, feed is like a little bit more of a traditional, like demi song in a way. You could probably found that on other albums, but I, I didn't hate that. You know, it was like a switch up near the end. Um, you know, the title track, Holy fuck there's moments on that track where i'm like she's just like screaming fuck just to scream it uh, you know, in the background but then there's yeah. other points where like the chorus was kind of got me she's like i'll show you the light with the lights off and i was like huh you know what that's it's kind of hot like I, good for you demi you're going for it you know you're trying to be a little sex pie don't blame you um 29 i really liked her vocal performance and the guitar on that almost gave me like a little like chris cornell vibe um you know like um black hole sun type distortion at the beginning thought that was pretty cool and then um oh man there's one other one is it um man i'm I'm blanking on it at the moment but there's one that starts off with um some drums in the beginning that sound very like um i don't know green day-ish almost kind of like this like worrying but like almost like jazzy type sound um if i can think of it before the end of our you know before we move on i'll mention again but definitely liked how she was pulling from so many different uh influences on this and i think obviously like skin in my teeth reminds me a lot of like garbage in ways um so you know you can tell that she had a lot of like songs from her childhood that she wanted to infuse into this i think she did a pretty good job and you know she's at she's at least trying something which i also we always give people credit for here because she could have very easily just made a plain old Demi record. And we'd be like, ah, same old, same old Demi still a great singer. Love it. Instead, there's a lot more to dig into here. So 
Yeah. Uh, I'd recommend listening to it for sure. Yeah, you know, it'd be interesting if she had found like a more visionary producing group. Like, I'm not expecting her to make the Halsey album with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, but what is like the Demi Lovato version of that? Is it mm. just Holy Fuck or is there something more? Who can say? Yeah, I'm trying to think who would be like a good producer for her. I would almost like to see her like work with Dave Grohl or something like that, especially, oh, cool. you know, Grohl having lost someone to substance abuse recently and Taylor Hawkins. Like, yeah. And obviously Cobain. I think they could maybe pull a lot out of each other, but who knows? It's a um, good one. Anyways, drop your thoughts on the Demi Lovato uh, album below. Uh, also go follow our, our nostalgia best of 2022 playlist on Spotify. We're going to switch up from music to TV where season one of the rehearsal with Nathan Fielder wrapped up this past Friday. Quick six episode season. Dave, did you get to check this out at all? I did not. I, uh, I saw a lot of the, the discourse about Nathan Fielder's docu-comedy HBO follow-up to Nathan for you, but I did not, I did not check it out. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, it just the, um, cringe not so not the cringe stuff i think it's just the fact that it's like the docu vibe to it all the fact that it's not not scripted is just mm-hmm. kind of the barrier to entry for me not usually something i'm into but i have appreciated seeing a lot of the reactions people have had it's clearly a singular work from nathan fielder something definitely significant that came out this summer that much is clear yeah you know he he as a creator and as a uh visionary is so singular he definitely brings that cringy vibe like you talked about i think awkward might just be the word that kind of best describes him and he leans into that so hard that i I definitely understand that his work is not for everybody the rehearsal is a show that i really enjoyed for the most part but definitely left me with a, a lot of thoughts and a lot of like confusing feelings about the show I think there were moments and I'm sure I'm sure you've seen a lot of the memes about things online. I mean, the him him with the laptop uh, desk around his his shoulders and like dropping into different scenes has become a bit of a on like a running joke online. But um, there are moments in this show that were probably some of the funniest moments of television that I've watched all year. And then. You know, there were moments where I was really left confused and uncertain about if if what we were watching was really like ethical or well thought out. It's hard too because, you know, it's a it's a docu comedy, uh, but we don't actually know how much of this is as you know, scripted versus unscripted. We don't know how much of this is actually what really like came out of this experiment, you know, taking these people in these situations where uh, you know, they wanted to attempt something before they actually did it to see if, you know, how it could go. And he runs them through all these rehearsals to make sure it goes perfectly for them. Obviously, it never actually goes perfectly, which is, I think, kind of the point of this. But, um, you know, it, it how much of that is actually what was intended versus what he wanted us to see. So it's it's really interesting. And I think the final episode has been something to talk about. He, you know, one of the the running arcs of the season is this woman named Angela, a very religious woman who wants to uh, see what it's like to be a mom before she's actually a mother. And so Nathan puts her in this dream house and has these child actors who are swapped in and out every couple of hours during the day. 
they try to find her a partner the the partner that she finds through dating is this uh guy who's really into numerology he comes across as very strange and off-putting and uh has become kind of a, a joke online but um it, throughout the the season nathan finds himself more and more involved in her arc to be her partner in this and actually ends up where she leaves but he's still going through with the rehearsal as like the father to these child actors now in this scenario and one of the child actors gets attached to him and is very upset when you know he's not going to be able to come back as the rehearsal is ending and is confused about like who nathan is in his life his, his own father is not really involved so he's kind of seeing nathan as this other uh father figure and it it really just leaves you kind of wondering like man what was this really thought out was this really done ethically in a way that where the the psychology and the the mental health impacts that this can have on the people involved was it really something that was considered fully um did it did the experiment of the show actually just take the show in unintended directions that they couldn't have planned for it's it's pretty thought-provoking uh they did uh renew it for season two they announced that just a few hours before uh the finale aired so i'm I'm definitely interested to see how the discourse around the show will impact how things go in season two i mean nathan fielder is pretty open about taking things that are happening on the internet around his content and working that into his content so i think we'll definitely be hearing from him about it in some way but i think it's it's hard because like I said, there are some moments that are just laugh out loud funny um, on this show. The first episode, I would say, is probably an all timer. Um, there's a couple of other just like absolutely gold moments where you know, Nathan had, attends a class that he actually had taught. He's rehearsing to understand the perspective of someone that's in the class. And so he's then talking to an actor playing him who's then responding to him in certain ways at a, really like a mindfuck episode uh, episode and you get really down the rabbit hole there um i would recommend it to anyone that that enjoyed nathan for you or or wants to kind of have a a challenging but also really rewarding watch um but definitely not where i expected the show to end up so um I, i would say i'm like pleased but not as not as thrilled about the show as i i once was when when we were about halfway through the season, I was like, this might be a top 10 show for me for this year. We're probably not going to land there now. So a uh, bit of a disappointment, but also a lot to like. Why don't we uh, switch gears, though, to a show that I was really pleased with. Only Murders in the Building Season 2, which actually just wrapped up today. Dave, give me just your like general overall thoughts about Only Murders in the Building Season 2. Yeah, I think the Hulu comedy is perfectly fun, perfectly pleasant, nice to be with, nice to be with these actors, particularly Steve Martin and Martin Short. Um, you know, I, I think the the plot can be a bit meandering, and there's a, really a ton of characters on the show, so you kind of have to just roll with your main trio here. But it's perfectly fun, perfectly nice. I don't think it's like the funniest comedy i watch far from it but i think only murders knows what it is at this point and by the way season two ended with the finale perhaps is branching out a little bit more now having a murder happen outside the arconia's uh walls you know 
So I probably like it a little bit more than I did after season one, where I thought it was a bit unremarkable ultimately. So the talent is probably what keeps you coming back more than anything else. Yeah, I think for me, I enjoyed season two a lot more than season one. I think what I really liked about season two um, was even though it had a lot of characters that were struggling at times felt, you know, a bit uh, meandering, like you said, I think the ability to take these characters who at times I just really didn't enjoy being with in season one. I mean, like we, we talked about how Martin Short, his performance can be not for everybody. And especially in season one, he's just totally playing, you know, his character to like the ninth and 10th level all the time. And, uh, you know, we, I talked about Selena Gomez being someone that I wasn't super impressed with as a, uh, actor in season one. I, I definitely think her performance season two was a little better. And Steve Martin, I actually grew liked a, a lot more by the end of season two. And I think it's because the show allowed them as characters to develop beyond just being, you know, the old folks with teamed up with the young folk and trying to like make sense of what a podcast is like the jokes that were pretty ham-fisted in the first season felt more put to the side and you got an opportunity to explore the idea of fatherhood and aging and, um, you know, relationships and trauma and how that informs relationships. And I, I think season two was just a lot more layered um, and, and had a lot more depth in terms of theme than season one. And I really ended up um, enjoying the ride of season two a lot more. Were there any storylines outside of the main murder, you know, who done it that you really found yourself enjoying? Well, I think that's kind of the issue with a lot of those other storylines is they really get picked up and dropped quite quickly if you think about the beginning of the show uh the central murder kind of becomes second uh second second in importance to other stuff going on later right um even though you get the uh what's her name bonnie bugsy a uh, bunny bunny jesus it's a bunny episode which i think That's is nice one. but after that it's kind of like she's like gone from the show you know they introduced that the, the waiter at that diner He's gone. The whole stuff with the building manager, you know, the new one coming in is she is suspect. She's pregnant. Oh, next thing you know, she's just not on the show for the next four episodes in a row. You know, it's mm-hmm. the stuff with the, the the hardcore fans, you know, they come in and out. I, I think that even the other people in the building that are getting fleshed out slowly but surely, I don't think any of those like side plots really have much heft to them because we just kind of move through them and live and we don't even resolve so it's really just about how everyone's in the orbit of charles oliver and mabel i think that's kind of the narrative heft is with them and kind of not really with anyone else even like like cara delavine uh she has this whole art thing going on right but like that again it's like it's really in it's not a lot of momentum with those other side plots i guess and then even there's stuff from season one like mabel's uh friend slash boyfriend who's like, mm-hmm. I think has gets gets two lines of acknowledgement on this season and is not on the show at all. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's it it's for me, I think it, like plot wise, it's definitely up and down. But, you know, I uh, I think I actually kind of, I did enjoy like when Tina Fey uh, came in more. Uh, more consistently towards the end when she becomes a suspect and the mm-hmm. all is not OK and Oklahoma uh, stuff comes up. 
even Michael Rappaport, I thought was uh, pretty effective as the uh, cop with some questionable motives, you know? But yeah, yeah like I said, the, the, thing, the three characters, the three, the art trio is like the, the crux of the show. And without them, I don't think this really works at all. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, definitely doesn't work without those three. Um, you know, I, I agree. I usually don't like Rappaport. I actually didn't mind his episode, the one where they're, uh, I think it's like second to last episode where they're following him around um, and kind of getting more of a background there. But yeah, I mean, you're completely right. Like Amy Schumer is like a fairly big part of the beginning of the season and then gets completely put to the side. Um, but, you know, I think all of those characters kind of work as people that are like viewed as suspects until they're they're ruled out type of thing, which is, is not like unheard of for whodunits, but definitely means that the show can feel a bit choppier and like there's a lot of like starts and stops. Um, I think for me, the, the storylines that I found myself most interested in, I really liked the episode where Mabel and Teddy uh, got a chance to, um, you know, spend the time together and go to um, was it Staten Island or was it Coney Island? I can't remember. Um, yeah. Coney. Yeah. They, they go to Coney Island and uh, I thought that episode was, was really nice. And then exploring just kind of like the idea of like, fathers and sons um you know steve martin is someone that didn't have a child you know how he had uh, become a, a father figure to uh, i forgot what what her name was the the young girl in the right season. i know because she goes um, away and you forget <laughs> yeah she she pops in and out as well um a uh, lucy lucy um is the character's name um yeah, so I, I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, obviously the, the paternity stuff with um, Martin Sheen's Oliver and, and his son, um, you know, kind of what is what it actually means to be a father and like how you define that. I mean, it's it's not anything like groundbreaking or new, but it, it, that, that stuff always like works on me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for that sort of thing, I think. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed seeing uh, Brazos, the comeback of Brazos. <laughs> <laughs> I want my soup. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that was so funny. Um yeah, that and in the last episode when they're trying to like uh throw Cinda can- Canning off of her game and they start like moving in slow motion. Yeah, the slow that, motion that was really actually pretty me. funny. That was hilarious. I I was like this is going to be so stupid and they really pulled it off. Thought that was great. Yeah. Um did you believe that he got stabbed? Cuz you know I was I was like 50-50 because I, I on the one hand, it was so unceremonious. Then they, you know, cuts back from Hulu commercial, and he has just the sheet over him. At that point, I'm like, oh, he's not dead. There's no way they would kill him off that unceremoniously. But right. I was like, you know, I could see, I could see Steve Martin not wanting to like be on this show forever. I mean, he's working, but like not like doing a ton of right. stuff. Yeah. At the end, at the other hand, though, I don't think you can make this show without this trio. They're all executive producers mm-hmm. of this show. This is Steve Martin's first show he's been creatively involved in in like over 10 years. So I don't think any of them will ever die. The show will just end personally. Yeah. But in the moment, I was like, oh, this is really convincing. Did he get stabbed? That's crazy. Wow. He's a good actor. <laughs> exactly. Shout out Brazos. Uh, I think it's a better Selena season for sure. Yes. I've liked Selena Gomez acting in other stuff, but the Mabel character, I haven't been a huge fan of that characterization. Just, just I think it's just the character's personality. She's just a bit big quirky for me almost kind of reigns in the charisma that Selena has shown in other roles. But mm-hmm. I think particularly her stuff with Rappaport, um, where he's, she's kind of like verbally boxing with him while actually sparring with him in the, in the, in the ring. 
that kind of brought out a different different side i think and yeah i think they're, they're, in general they're kind of finding uh, a rhythm with these characters and with this show and like oliver like i think martin short like really knows like what's going on with oliver at this point just these ridiculous lines these ridiculous mannerisms because he's just a ridiculous character and you just kind of have to roll with that right like i think in the first season they 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 kind of annoyed me with stuff like trying to play sympathy for Oliver's like finances, even though he lives in this like luxurious apartment beyond his means. But like now they just forget about all that shit, you know, Mm -hmm. we're just going to be with these people and watch them uh, somehow be involved in another murder, you know? Cool. Well, I, I, I wonder if you're supposed to also like when it comes to Oliver's finances, like believe the podcast success is somewhat like booing him. I don't know. But I mean, there is that, like there are moments where he's like, Oh yeah, I owe you a lot of money. Don't I? it's just kind of like mentioned but they don't like really like sit on it a lot which i agree with nice i am looking forward to season three um you know they set it up with paul rudd playing the person who's killed uh ben yes. glenroy um naturally we'll have a flashback episode a hundred percent i'm actually pretty interested because i think some of the the setup you know the things said between paul rudd and steve martin before the the show goes on there was all really interesting so uh, i'm i'm definitely bought in at this point and uh, it's a, it's a show that a few people that i don't get to connect with about shows a lot in my life really enjoyed like my my parents uh, some co-workers so it feels like a like a easy non-confrontational show that you can really recommend and, and connect with people around so i enjoy that about it as well yeah i mean it's already the biggest hulu comedy and one of their biggest shows, period. Um, there's a lot of Emmy attention for that first season that we'll find out about soon. Um, or was that last time? Because I forget. Um, but yeah, it sounds like this is a show that everyone's pretty invested with Hulu and our three leads. So I imagine season three probably comes out uh, next year. They seem to be whipping this one up quick because it was only a, it was a very brief wait from season one to season two. We'll be talking about it whenever it comes out. But Dave, we're going from shows that wrapped up to new shows now. She-Hulk on Disney+. Plus. Um, yeah, I mean, why don't we just start off? Were you looking forward to She-Hulk? Um, that's a great question. I think in a vacuum, I was because I think it introduces a, once again, tantalizing presence of Marvel doing something new. Marvel legal comedy? Low stakes Marvel show? Low stakes Marvel anything? Sign me up for that. Sounds great. Tatiana Maslani. I like her a lot. She was great on Perry Mason. Emmy winner for Orphan Black. Sounds like good casting. Marvel usually does great with casting. Not surprising. Yeah, that all sounds good. Now, whether the show is actually going to be those things I was promised it was going to be, I have no fucking clue. Because in the beginning, you have this huge uh, sequence with Bruce Banner, Mark Ruffalo back as the, you know, OG Hulk, smart Hulk, he calls himself now. Is that what the show is going to be? Or are we going to settle in to that, like, workplace legal comedy? I don't know yet. We've only seen the first episode. We know there's going to be other MCU cameos of various stature coming in with Wong and Abomination, Tim Roth coming back from 08 Incredible Hulk, and also uh, Charlie Cox as... Matt Murdock, Daredevil, coming back. Makes sense. He's also a lawyer. So how much will it really get to be 
itself versus servicing all these other MCU threads. I don't know, but the idea of it, I like, but I also like the idea of Moon Knight, and I didn't like Moon Knight by the end of it. Um, Yeah, you know, I, I think... I wouldn't say I was necessarily like looking forward to it. I feel like when it comes to the shows at this point, I don't find myself getting super hyped. I think that's one because of the varying levels of success that the shows have had. Um, and I think just quality of, of the shows, but also, it, it, you know, I think unless they're really doing something weird and intriguing, um, I, I'm, I don't find myself super bought in and I don't know if I feel totally convinced that they're going to fully commit to the, the legal comedy like for show here. Yeah. And the first episode only further like solidifies those fears for me because we got a pretty straightforward origin story. Um, we uh, it's, it's a little bit more tongue in cheek with a lot of fourth wall breaking right. Uh, Jennifer Walters, you know, speaks directly to the camera, talking, you know, making jokes that are very meta jokes. Is Steve Rogers a virgin? Like the internet meme, you know, yes. discourse, which is is funny, but it just kind of leaves me like, I get that they're trying to be a little more edgy, a little bit funnier, but I don't know if I totally right. trust Marvel to really lean into what they say they're going to do. To their credit, that is coming from the comics. The She-Hulk comic talks to the reader and actually did that before Deadpool ever did. That being said, you're right. We need to see Marvel Studios do this correctly, do this well, convincingly, whatever, before I get invested in it, in it working. And I, I also need to see one of these MCU shows that doesn't clearly just feel like set up and stat padding for an eventually more significant role and performance in a movie to come out at a later date. Does that not describe every single one of the Marvel shoes to this point? At least some of them had other qualities like Loki and WandaVision, but the rest more or less just felt like a setup, right? Setting up Kate Bishop, setting up Moon Knight, setting up Miss Marvel, setting up She-Hulk. Here we are once again. So I think Tatiana Maslany is a nice choice. She's just a talented actor. You want to hire talented actors for your franchises. We know that. And I'm sure whatever future movie thing she is in will be intriguing. Also important to note that the film rights for the the Hulk, Credible Hulk, have been complicated this entire run of Marvel because Universal actually uh, is in the mix for distributing that. That's why we've never got another Hulk movie after 08. That's why the Planet Hulk storyline was more or less serviced via Thor Ragnarok, right? So She-Hulk is kind of like Marvel's out to doing the Hulk, we assume banner and ruffalo are at the end of their rope as, as an og person in the mcu so she hopes like a new new path forward new and honestly probably a more interesting version right definitely more quite popular comic character but that fourth wall breaking the, the more humor humorous aspect to it so i am cautiously optimistic but again you really have no way of knowing where the show's gonna go after the first episode and we've as you said, we've seen a few of these at this point to know that, you know, it's hard to get your hopes up, I think, for the narrative, uh, you know, stakes being too high. And that's not necessarily the creator's fault. It feels more like a management problem. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot made of the VFX with this, especially with the trailer. I don't know about you, but I, I didn't really mind it all that much. I think going in, I'm kind of assuming like 
yeah, probably the She-Hulk CGI will be a little bit rougher than the Hulk CGI because they've had the Hulk CGI for a while. They kind of have those models and stuff, right? This is from scratch. So, yep, it'll probably get better over time. But I don't know. I, I wasn't distracted by it at all. I actually thought the the fight, the Hulk fight was actually pretty solid for, for TV standards. Yeah, uh, you know, especially hearing the criticisms of the VFX going in. Um, I was kind of looking for it and I didn't see anything that felt egregious, you know, nothing like the uh, Aquaman sand, uh, which will forever be my, my lowest bar. So if there's any, if it doesn't come close to that, I'm pretty satisfied. Um, I, I thought the VFX was okay. And I actually, I, I, for as much as I'm bagging on it, I really enjoyed certain moments of this. I thought, uh, Tatiana and, um, Mark Ruffalo really had good chemistry and played off each other really well. Um, and obviously they spend a lot of time together. So I thought that was, um, I thought that was a fun way to kind of introduce the character and um, give her, you know, immediate credibility with Ruffalo playing right across from her. Um, I really thought the, um, the, her discovering her powers but not having the same issues that Bruce Banner has was yes. really funny the way that they kind of talked mm-hmm. about it all and also like really smart commentary on the issues that uh, most women face in the world. Yes. I probably can say oh, yeah. all women face in the world and how that's kind of almost like prepared her to be a, a better Hulk right from the get go. Right. Um, oh, oh, I have to watch my anger and keep it in. Oh wow! Never done that before. Yeah, yeah, right. Literally. Oh, I have to worry about being scared. I, you know, being a woman in the world is scary. Like I thought that was all really smart and well done. Um, and yeah, then I also like really liked how she does get a little bit of a courtroom moment near the end. Um, obviously leads to Titania showing up. Jamila Jamil, who mm-hmm. I'm excited. Yeah, you know, I, I, I really haven't seen her doing much since the Good Place. So yeah, that's right. I, I loved her on that. I, I obviously really like her husband and the music he makes. So maybe we'll get a, a little James Blake in this. Who knows? Right. Um, but man, I, I think overall, like I'm like cautiously optimistic, um, would love it if they really lean into the courtroom drama of it all. I just, again, uh, I, I need to see Marvel do it before. I think I trust them fully. Totally. Also, uh, Renee, uh, Renee Elise Goldsberry is also on the show. I'm not exactly sure what she's up to, but once again, they have the talent for the show. We, like you said, we got to see it. Got to see it. Put your money where your mouth is. Let's uh, move from Disney Plus, though, to Westeros. I've seen We're it. Back, baby. Man, uh, Dave, House of the Dragon, season one, episode one, series premiere in the books. I'm wondering for you, we've talked about our Game of Thrones thoughts. You can go back and check out all of our breakdowns for that and our general thoughts on the show. Um, Were you itching to get back to Westeros? Yes, I was. Game of Thrones is my number one show of the 2010s, despite the way it ended. And I'm just a huge fan of this incredibly rich and detailed world that George R. R. Martin has created and being back sounds great. We've known about many of these spin-offs in various stages of development for some time doing the dance of the dragons, doing the Targaryen civil war is an amazingly smart choice for that first trip back to Westeros after game of Thrones. 
it is in one hand a safe choice, a familiar choice, but also will give you, I think, everything people want from Game of Thrones storytelling, the palace intrigue. Now, with the budgets of the later seasons of Game of Thrones, it sounds great to me. So I, I was very excited for this, especially once I saw that first trailer. And I was like, yep, this looks exactly the way I want it to. You know, I, I, I'm i just in the bag for this. I really can't wait to keep going. Yeah, you know, I think the discourse around the ending of Game of Thrones on social media, especially, had kind of left me being like, yeah, I don't know if I'm like, if I need Game of Thrones back. But I definitely was incredibly intrigued. All the trailers looked fantastic. Um, I think the uh, idea of being with the dragons again, being in this world of um, you know political maneuvering, of action, um, violence, and some very violent ways in this first episode was intriguing, and I was cautiously optimistic. For this i i think i felt like no matter what we got in this first episode i was gonna be like excited but i i think my expectations were blown away because i thought this premiere was really strong and not only did it kind of rekindle those same thrones feelings that i had but it just made me so excited to be with these characters who we only got to be with for 60 minutes and i to <laughs> be able to set up these characters to the the level and depth that they did to kind of set up the the brewing conflict at the center of all this the way that that they did in this episode obviously with some changes from the book to i think probably push certain characters together and and certain actors together um i just was super impressed i I thought they did a great job and you know when you have uh miguel sapochnik at the Mm. helm someone who knows exactly what he's doing within this world i think that probably could have been expected but uh really shout out to him because i thought this was really well done were you impressed with the first episode to the same level i was oh yeah totally and i think that's right having ryan condal and miguel sapochnik be your co-showrunners of this you have people that really love this world and really care about this you know benioff and, and weiss it. clearly were burned out by the end and unfortunately that did affect the way the series series ended that is not the case with who we got here and of course people know sapochnik is directed some of the biggest and most acclaimed set piece episodes of the series. Um, you know, I really liked how it started too, just for the more casual fan. I already know this. A lot of people already know this, but not everyone knows when this show is taking place. What's going on here? They very explicitly tell you that we're about 200 years before Robert's Rebellion. We're a long way before anything we've seen in Game of Thrones with Daenerys and John and Ned and everyone else. So even though this is a prequel, it takes place in the past. Every single person you see on the show will live their full life and then die before anything you've seen before. So it doesn't have, I think, that like kind of like narrative uh, fault that some prequels can have where you know what's going to happen or, you know, people have plot armor. Uh, to someone who hasn't read Fire and Blood, hasn't read the George R. R. Martin uh, world book. And you can figure out what happened if you want. But if you haven't read that, haven't read the wiki, you have no idea what's going on. It's completely compelling narrative start to finish that also George has completely laid out already. We know, He knows how the story ends because he already already wrote it all. So, um, I, like I said, I think it's a really slam dunk first premise to adapt. And that first episode, I think, does a really good job of hitting home why all of that makes sense. 
some familiarity, right? When they mix in the old Game of Thrones theme early on, when uh, the princess is up in the air on the dragon, the palace intrigue that we love from early Game of Thrones, right there, right away, when we see like Viserys with a small council, and you start seeing the seeds get developed, and they very quickly establish Matt Smith's uh, Daemon Targaryen, the the prince of the city, the brother of the king. They establish him as a familiar anti-hero slash villain figure a la a Jamie Lannister perhaps you know so god I just think right from the get-go it's like man this we're back we're back doing it again I can't wait yeah it, it draws you right in from the very beginning and you know some some similarities to the first Game of Thrones um you know you have the the political like discussions at the table but also like setting up for this uh, tournament, which is like obviously yes. a great way to bring people together. And I thought the tournament was a lot of fun to, to watch the games actually happen. And a lot of the, mm. you know, undercurrents there, it feels, it, it feels pretty safe to say that, uh, that, that night, what's his name? The, the Dornish one um, is probably yes. going to be the, the new uh, internet boyfriend <laughs> of the show moving forward. Right. The new adult Robin Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sir, Sir Kristen Cole. Played yep. by Fabian Frankel seems pretty. Yes, he bests he bests on merit. Damon at the end after Damon kind of begrudgingly wants to continue the fight on foot or however it was said, you know. But yeah, yeah. it was cool to see attorney uh, laid out. Uh, we see the whole thing, you know. There is attorney in Game of Thrones season one, but if I remember right, we see very little of the actual jousting. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are many famous attorneys throughout. Uh, Game of Thrones lore, such as the turning in Harrenhal. So just to see one, you know, um, and I, this is probably one of the more least significant ones, right? Compared to some of the more famous ones in the lore, but regardless, just seeing it and seeing it, of course, HBO knows Sapochnik, they know how to do this. Sapochnik directed this episode. Uh, it's just really visceral stuff. And then unexpectedly, but perhaps not surprisingly, they make this amazing montage between the violence of the tourney as it's getting, uh, getting a bit hairy, you know, elbows, elbows coming out and uh, skulls getting crushed on, in the tourney. Didn't know the rules were so loose there, mm-hmm. but they intersplice that with this very traumatic and uh, violent uh, birth scene from yeah, the queen, the, which takes the, her the, life. The C-section uh, yep. where, you know, King Viserys has to choose, does he save his wife's life or attempt to save the life of his uh, newborn potential heir to the throne? Um, and man, I, that was incredibly brutal, um, really well done, but the, the level of convincing that that scene with the C-section was played to was like, I actually couldn't watch. I had to like hold my like hand above my eyes. Every time they got back to it, I was like, okay, close it. Yeah, I was the same way. It's like, it's not that I am, uh, squeamish with blood on screen, but it's more like, I just don't know if I want to see you take it all the way. And thankfully, yeah. they don't actually show it all the way, but they got pretty close. They got pretty close, dude. Pretty Game close. of Thrones has not gone soft on us. We know that much. <laughs> and, you know, I got to say, um, it, it probably was the kiss of death when you have that really nice scene between King Viserys and uh, Queen uh, Emma, uh, where yep. she's in the bath. And, you know, they, they really are, I, I think, convincingly portray this loving relationship between them and just like right. how... Viserys, who's kind of, I think, seen as like a weak king, potentially someone who thrust into power before he was even ready or even ever should have been. 
peaceful ruler, peaceful reign, but not like a strong leader, not certainly as beloved as his uh, predecessor, Jaehaerys, for sure. And especially with his sister, um, uh, is her name also Rhaenerys? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, Rhaenys, and then uh, his daughter is Rhaenyra. They're very similar. Jeez. Um, but his sister was the one that everybody felt like was the, the best choice to kind of bring the kingdoms together, but uh, yeah, patriarchy right. would not allow the that. The queen who never was. Um, so I, I definitely thought that was great. And then, you know, that, that's followed up by this very, uh, I think, moving uh, funeral scene. Yeah. Where, you know, you see, uh, I think, a lot of different dynamics. Obviously, you see how broken Viserys is and how uh, just totally destroyed uh, the daughter is Princess Rhaenyra. But then you also see Matt Smith, who plays Prince Damon. We haven't really talked much about him yet, um, consoling Rhaenyra. And, you know, their relationship and their dynamic is, I think, going to be a really interesting aspect to this first season and, and to I think the the conflict moving forward because they seem pretty close whereas Viserys and, and Damon are obviously moving apart by the end of the episode based oh, yeah. on something Damon supposedly said never fully confirmed um, also an interesting aspect of this and then it leads to the you know the final like talk around the table about the the air and, and you know Damon supposedly saying that this was he was the heir for the day type of thing um Mm-hmm. man i mean just that that sequence in general i thought was so well done what were your thoughts on it oh totally yeah i think the uh the funeral scene looks awesome um mm-hmm. it almost looked like dragonstone i wasn't sure if they were actually at yeah. dragonstone that would have been a big trip they took eh, i guess it would make sense um you hear the dracaris right rhaenyra lays it down gives the permission for the for the barbecue there but yeah, seeing that custom, that like that was good, and yeah, I think all the small council stuff is awesome. In general, I love the small council scenes from Game of Thrones. I would yeah. watch them forever. Just like you know, tell me about the pirates at the Stepstones. Tell me about the the issues that the Master of Coin is worried about. You know, I, I'm with it. Just just tell me what's going on. But mm-hmm. seeing the the open contempt that Damon. And the hand of the king, uh, Otto Hightower, half for each other. Otto Hightower played by uh, Reese Efans. That conflict, just seeing where it's already at, and we, you, you know, they will be on opposite sides with the conflict to follow. Uh, very, very tantalizing. And then they, they do a good job of being like, you know what? No, nope. uh, Otto, he's not the clear, clear good guy here either, because he attempts to whore out his fucking daughter to Viserys, yep. right? His daughter Allison, who's you know at court supposed to really kind of re- remind you of a young Sansa, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You want to archetype it there. And uh, Allison will be played soon by Olivia Cook once we move a little bit further in time. Big fan of hers. Can't wait to see that. Um, yeah, I, I think in general, what's what's cool about this story as we see it unfold is that there's a lot more gray uh, on both sides with this. There's not like kind of clear defined like good guys and bad guys per se. And it's like a, you know, the shift of allegiances, the politicking of it all very game of thrones but it'll be fun i think to watch uh as a viewer and decide where where you're siding with things right because you would think after watching one episode like oh clearly princess rhaenyra is our is our hero right yeah yeah and maybe that'll still be the case but uh you know truth uh you can look up what happens if you want i would probably advise not not doing that but uh very appealing and also 
people I like further down the cast list, right? The uh, the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard is played by Graham McTavish, who was awesome in The Hobbit. Uh, Sonoya Mizuno as Masseria, the paramour of Damon. Big fan of hers. Not sure mm-hmm. what's going on with her, but that'll be cool. And then you have uh, Steve Toussaint as Corliss uh, Valeria of uh, Corliss Valerian, the uh, the husband of uh, the queen who never was. What one of the wealthiest men in the realm on the council right now? What is he up to? Is he gonna? What, what is his side? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, all the setup is just so, so appealing, right? And I just can't wait to see see shit pop off. You know, <laughs> it's, I think it's probably obvious to many that uh, Viserys is not long for this show because his succession is the whole uh, crux of the conflict to come. Uh, literally, this is a guy who uh, got got by the crown by by the throne. He literally cut himself on the throne, and that's how he went. And they obviously foreshadow that heavily in the first episode, but kind of tough, right? It's like, yeah, peaceful king, more or less effective, but he's kind of soft, and he went out in a soft way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's so tough because I think in in these worlds, if you have even like the an ounce of like tenderness, it's just you know you're you're not long for the world. You know, something we didn't talk about, Damon, his absence is there's a big talking point at the beginning and then he finally does show up and just starts <laughs> wrecking shit just starts yeah. rounding up people who yeah. are accused the of go- crimes yeah the gold cloaks the city watch has been uh radicalized under his le- command basically mm-hmm. i i thought that scene was just completely brutal you know you and you, you see amputations you see them you know cutting oh, yeah. off body parts it's really really brutal and, and that was kind of the moment where i was like you know th- this is an aspect of thrones where i'm not uh i wasn't totally missing it you know the the goriness and um mm-hmm. they they have talked about how um in these uh, the house of dragon seasons they're not going to show um like rape scenes or things like that that all the sex that you see will be consensual to some degree right. um yeah. you know and uh, i think that that's a important choice but just uh overall thoughts on just you know damon and and him wrecking shit but also just the goriness of the show in general yeah i I think um we we, there's those two big gory moments right like you said the gold cloaks wrecking shop in king's landing and then the montage of the tourney and the birth Mm -hmm. um that's a lot it's definitely a lot you know and um i think at the end of the day it's an r-rated series and it'll continue to be that but i don't expect to see like wanton gore every episode because that's not how game of thrones was either so i think you just kind of have to roll with that right um yeah didn't necessarily mind seeing it though in the sense that they're kind of reestablishing uh the thrones pov as it were in terms of violence but yeah i mean i think not seeing sexual violence moving forward is totally fine it doesn't somehow negate the brutality of westeros in any way so Mm -hmm. that's great um i think my other big scene i was a big fan of was uh when you see Viserys down in the in the bowels of the Red Keep in front of uh, Balerion, the Black Dread's skull, the dragon skull, Aegon's dragon, kind of like in uh, a shrine, you know, with all these, this bed of candles, of course, when we see that skull via Tyrion uh, in early Game of Thrones is, of course, just kind of collecting cobwebs in the basement because the Targaryens no longer rule. But back then, it's like this, this big, big shrine, more or less. And that's where you get this uh, revelatory scene to the mm-hmm. the lore heads where 
Viserys tells his daughter Rhaenyra about this kind of assumed birthright or, or mission statement that the Targaryen lineage has passed down where they are protecting the realm from the the winter to come once summer finally ends they need to unite everyone to defend the realm and it's like huh that kind of uh, agency had never been established by the Targaryen family kind of cool to hear that you know um, Easter egg he's holding the cat's paw dagger mm-hmm. while he's saying that I didn't actually notice I, I noticed it I was like oh that's a, that's a cool looking dagger I didn't re- recognize it as the cat's paw from early Game of Thrones that's uh, but alas I think that was definitely a cool scene and it'll be interesting if that kind of uh, sense of purpose and responsibility affects one or both of the sides to come probably Rhaenyra's side uh, in the conflict but uh, yeah I think that was that was definitely a cool moment to, to see Definitely cool to see. Um, cool to see that uh, Valyrian steel really don't crack. I mean, damn, the cat's paw lasted like over two hundred years. That's that's insane. At least, uh, yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, and yeah, I think because you know, it, whether if you're a casual viewer or even if you're more of a lorehead, like um, you, where Game of Thrones starts, Targaryens are pretty much on the outs, and Danny and her brother are trying to bring them back into prominence. And, <laughs> They're the only ones. <laughs> yes, and so. Um, to kind of hear where where they were as a people and as a house and to know that they're kind of setting this up as like yeah we're it and like it's always kind of meant to be this way according to the the visions of Aegon um and to see how far that they're going to fall you know you just know that they're mm-hmm. in for a lot of tragedy yeah. and heartbreak <laughs> in, in the coming seasons I mean I, I assume it's probably going to be like a less long running series I don't think it will go seven or eight seasons probably like four or five but right. um, I mean, there's a lot here, a lot to dig into. Yeah, and that also brings the question: is if you look at like the bio that the House of the Dragon has on game on HBO, like you know, like just how it's like listed in like in marketing and stuff, it's almost positioned as House of the Dragon is a show about the Tarks, and perhaps we have a two three season run about the Dance with the Dragons, and then they keep quote, House of the Dragon going, and we go to something else. Hmm. Whether that's Aegon's Conquest, or the Doom of Valyria, you know, the Targaryens fleeing something, you know. Interesting, interesting thought that this could almost be a Westeros anthology, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of intriguing stuff to do with the Targaryens, if you wanted. you'd ha- I mean, it feels like Aegon's Conquest is an easy one to do eventually, not one that's been reported in development, so I don't know about 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 that but yeah this is not going to be an eight season run for sure doesn't need to be and i think it'll probably be better for it that this is going to be more succinct but fun to invest in you know it's um that that's awesome and i uh yeah i think it's just really great to be back back in the world and uh who knows if we'll hear any news about future spinoffs we did have the kind of breaking news right before this about the john snow sequel series that uh, George himself did even comment on on his blog but um in the meantime I, I'm, I'm like I said I'm happy to be with this kind of this prequel status and we can just kind of chop it up in in Westeros and watch some good old-fashioned succession fights you know sounds great yeah completely agree um and we aren't the only ones 10 million people apparently were tuned into this for the premiere there are amazing videos of 
apartment buildings in New York City where you look up at the windows and the lights are moving in unison because everybody's watching Game of Thrones at the same or sorry House of Dragon at the same time. It's uh, pretty amazing uh, to have a show back that brings people together this way. Yep. And in what, two weeks, is it not even? Yeah. No, sorry. A week from Friday. We get Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power on Amazon. It's going to be crazy to see these two shows at the same time. Uh, fantasy shows. Uh, this has to be the the height of them, right? I mean, yeah, it's so funny. It's just expensive. <laughs> totally, and it's so funny. We talked about the next Game of Thrones for so long, right? Talking about shows like The Wheel of Time or <laughs> The Nevers or Foundation, whatever it was. It's like you know what? No, we got Game of Thrones, and we got the next best thing. We got Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Nobody else needs to try anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, anyways, we're gonna wrap up there for this week, Dave. What do we got for next week? Yeah, so next week I think it's uh it's not quite as monumentous as the the <laughs> week we just had, but we got a bunch of interesting music, uh, Jid album, Michi Darko from Flatbush Zombie solo album, Twice EP, Muse album. We'll be finally be talking about Westworld season four. We've been putting it off and putting it off. We will be discussing it, and also George Miller. Remember him. His first yeah. movie since Mad Max Fury Road is coming out. 3,000 oh, yeah. Years of Longing with Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. Let's go. I wish this movie was getting more press, but this is literally the follow-up to Mad Max Fury Road. Awesome. And yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Let's talk, about a, talk about a, it. a late August movie, and it happens to be from George Miller. I mean, we, we could be doing worse. We could definitely be doing worse. <laughs> uh, SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod if you really want to go OG. You go to youtube.com slash nostalgia pod, give us a subscribe, and also go to Twitter, search at nostalgia pod, follow the account there, and then hit the link tree to follow us any way that you want to. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.